Good morning. Uh, welcome to Southland City Church. My name is Jason. We're honored that you are here. Uh, I know that in this season there's some new faces. Uh, maybe something about the turn toward Advent and Christmas has you looking for a space to explore some of that story. Uh, maybe your heart's just longing for some connection to that. Um, so if you're new here, uh, we're especially honored that you are here. We think that it is an act of bravery to try a new church. And so I don't know if you feel brave, but we think that you are very brave for being here today. And we're really grateful that we get to be here together in this season. We call ourselves the community of grace and peace for our city and the world. And those are, those are big words that we take from our experience of Jesus, that we keep discovering grace and peace in who he is and what he does and what he calls out of us. And so we're uh, on the hunt for those things together and we keep bumping into them and figuring out how to live them out. Now, uh, I want to call out the fact that some of you are liturgically literate, which means you've been around this whole Advent candle thing before which means you're very concerned because we're doing it wrong. <laughs> because typically on the first Sunday of Advent, we don't have all the candles lit. I'm going to get to that in a minute. So just hold on. I promise we're going to get there. This is the first Sunday of Advent. And before we turn to like, the topic at hand, a couple other ways that you could explore the season that are available to you here. Uh, one is up in the mezzanine, in the balcony there. You might notice that we've hung, hung some artwork. So last year, we didn't have Sunday gatherings because of COVID, but instead we opened up this space every day for some prayer and reflection. And those are the actual images that were part of that prayer and reflection. We thought we'd hang them back up this year in case you want to take them in. Uh, they're from an artist friend of South and City Church, an artist named Scott Erickson, who wrote a book called Honest Advent. And he made images that are meant to help us like encounter the arrival of God in this season and like the actual context of real life, not the sort of romanticized visions that sometimes come along with this season. So the images are really beautiful and powerful. If you want to check them out, head up after the gathering today or another week this month. Uh, the stairs are there. We also have a lift in the Northwest Lobby, which is entirely thanks to a previous year's Christmas offering. Uh, so thanks for all of you who gave to that year that uh, people can access the second floor through the lift. And then the other thing uh, that was part of last year uh, that we have available again today and through this month is uh, we made these little at-home kits for the Christmas Eve film, if you like watched the film and did the stuff. And we have extra uh, Christmas ornaments that we included in those kits. These are like really beautiful, like handmade, like wooden ornaments. They say peace. They're like our own like, like Southland City Church family Christmas ornament, and we have a bunch left over from last year. So if you want to grab one of those, they're in a basket right out there in the lobby. You're welcome to take one home and put it on your tree. Uh, that's the other stuff. Now let's talk about this fiasco that I've created on the stage here with all the candles lit. Why would we do that? Because before we get to the part where there's one candle lit, I just wanted to observe with us that uh, a lot of the context we're in right now like as we come out of Thanksgiving and into the Christmas season, a lot of the messages that we hear, a lot of the aesthetic of the season is like this, right? It's like all is merry and bright, right? Like uh, really happy songs are playing in stores and commercials are just like, just egging you on with that feeling of nostalgic warmth and joy, scenes of perfect families at perfect tables where there's no conflict or political debates. Like this is, this is the aesthetic of the season as it's presented to us. And to me, it feels a little bit like the absurdity of having all four candles lit right now. Because if you've been around churches that do this candle thing, you probably know that like typically on the first Sunday of Advent, we start with none of the candles lit and then we light just one. And that through that act, through that little ritual, through that little sacrament, we have a, a symbol of how it is that we experience hope in this season, which is that it often starts kind of fall, small and, and fickle, but it, it grows little by little as light in the darkness. And that's what we're going to get to today. 
But to get there, I, I want to like just call out some of the truth of the actual lives that we are living in the season that we are in. And I don't do this to be glum or depressing, but just to try to like stretch ourselves around the whole truth, the complicated truth of our lives and our world. So for example, some of you have had a really hard week because it was Thanksgiving. Maybe family is really hard for you. Uh, maybe Thanksgiving is a day that makes you feel really homeless. Uh, maybe you don't feel welcome uh, in your family of origin or at their table, or maybe it's unsafe for you to be there. Or maybe you were there, but it just didn't go the way you wanted. Uh, maybe family is problematic, or maybe family is missing. I'm not sure. Uh, but for a number of people, and I've even talked to a number of you today, I know that this week was actually uh, kind of a dark week. Uh, and if that's you, like, we are with you in that. Like, we feel that with you. This is a community that has room for that. For others, um, it's just the awareness that there's, like, new COVID variants, and we're going into another winter, and it's just like, dang it, could we please be done with this, right? Like, what's it called, Omicron now? Where do they come up with these, by the way? <laughs> and it just, it just feels like this thing keeps going on and on and on, and, like, there's new questions about vaccine effectiveness against new variants, and it just, I think a lot of us had hoped that we would be in a different place today than we are with the pandemic. And the thought of facing another winter of uncertainty whether that uncertainty is medical or economic or like, like whatever it is that it's shaking in you, something about COVID continuing can make things feel kind of dark. Uh, for others, like you're, you're dialed into the politics and it just feels like the division continues and uh, the anger continues, the fighting continues. It feels like we are a little bit divided and conquered right now, doesn't it? And um, maybe you're exhausted from that feeling, but you keep reading the news and paying attention and talking to your friends who see things differently from you, and it just continues to feel like, like the world that we are building politically here in the West isn't working. And that can be a really defeating kind of feeling. And then there's whatever you're carrying that I haven't named. Whatever's particular to your life, whatever struggles that have stretched out in your life and you wish you were done with them, or maybe the people you love and the things that they are struggling with. Uh, places in your personal world where things are just not the way that you long for them to be. And some of those circumstances have gone on for long enough that it can feel pretty dark. And those are just a few of the examples or categories of, of dark things in the world that a lot of us are facing and carrying. And this is actually where Advent begins, right? Uh, this is actually like how we begin to tell the story of, of what we are anticipating. We start with this really sort of conf confrontational picture of um, a world that can feel a little bit dark. Now, uh, a journey in my life in the last few years is I've, is I've tried to continue to understand like, like what is faith like in the world that we live in? Like how does faith work in the world that we live in? I don't want a lot of the answers that I grew up with that don't seem to work for me anymore. And I I still want to be on the hunt for understanding like, how faith actually works in the world and in us. And one of the places where I've found a lot of profound learning in the last few years is as I've turned to listening to the experiences of, of my black sisters and brothers, both historically and in the current world. And one of the reasons I've done that is because I keep discovering that if you want to like, learn like, where faith really works and what it actually does in the world, well, look to the places and the people and the experiences that have been the hardest in the world. Right, where injustice has been, where suffering has been, where darkness has been, because that when you turn to those spaces, you might find a wisdom that all of us need right now. 
And so that's been part of the learning journey for me in the last few years, um, understanding just the history that our black sisters and brothers have been through, and then looking for the threads of faith that have been woven through that. And then even today, the world that our black sisters and brothers continue to live in, uh, that is unjust and continuing to hear like, from their experiences. And in that learning journey, I, I bumped into this artifact. Uh, and I've, I've talked about this before, but I just find it so interesting as an artifact from history and for all the things that it might say to us. The artifact I'm talking about is a Bible that was printed in 1807 in London. And that Bible is currently on display at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And it's sometimes called the Slave Bible. The story on the Bible is the uh, white owners of enslaved African Americans here in the U.S. wanted to quote-unquote like Christianize the people they were enslaving. At least that's what they said. And so they, they kind of paint their own motivation as sharing their faith with the people that they were enslaving. Uh, and they also said they were trying to like help them learn the English language, and so we'll give them the Bible to help them do that. However, curiously, these uh, white uh, people who were enslaving black people cut out parts of the Bible that would be problematic for the slavery project. So they, they gave them an edited, a redacted, a, a cut-out Bible that removed the things in the Bible that would be problematic for the slavery that they were continuing to enact in the world. And so like, you wonder, like, okay, so you're a person who wants to perpetuate this evil project of enslaving other people. Well, what in the Bible is going to be especially problematic for that project? Turns out a lot, actually. They had to cut out a lot of the Bible. But one of the texts that they removed from the Bible, curiously, is the book of Revelation. That book at the end of the Bible, the last book in the Bible. Have you read Revelation? I don't necessarily recommend it, honestly. It's just, no, that's not fair. I do, I do. But like, do it wisely with great caution and find some good teachers because it is a complicated, bizarre, messy, strange book. But the book of Revelation ultimately ends up being a picture of, uh, of a world where justice is finally uh, set through everything, where evil is finally completely dealt with. The book of Revelation ends up being a book about God setting things right in the world in the end. And I think the thing that these slave owners knew in their evil project is a thing that we sometimes forget in our attempts at hope. There was, there's a certain kind of sadistic intelligence in what they were doing because I think what they knew was that sometimes the, the world that we believe is coming ends up being the world that we build right now. That the world that we believe is ultimately coming will end up being the world that we build right now. That this isn't always the case with humans, but often it's the case that if we think we see where the story is going, we end up lining ourselves up with that destination right now. And it turns out if you think that there's a clock ticking, that there's an expiration date on injustice, you might divest yourself of injustice right now, yeah. right? Like talk to anybody who's in investments and they'll tell you about shorting stock, which is where like you have a bet about where a stock is headed that's different than what the market says. And so you short the stock, which means that you stand to profit greatly if you were right and the market is wrong. Because if you think you know where things are headed, you might make a bet on the failure of something that you think will ultimately come to an end. So if you believe the clock is ticking on injustice, you might begin to resist it right now. If you think the clock is ticking on slavery, you might, you might begin to resist it right now. If you think it's ticking on your neighbor's slavery, you might join the resistance of it right now. If you think the clock is ticking on anything broken in the world, that those broken places and broken movements and broken structures and broken systems and broken behaviors, that all of that will ultimately someday come to an end, you might begin to live for the healing of those things right now. I, I think that that is 
there in the, in the sadistic intelligence of these people who were trying to own other people. And so they said, we better not let these people that we are enslaving get their hands on a story that says that one day this will all change, because if they do, they might start to change it right now. This, I think, is a little bit about like, how hope works. Now, I want to go further into that text, uh, that book of Revelation, and I want to show you just like one feature from it that I think takes us like, like further into understanding how this hoping works, like how the, how the Bible does its hoping and how it like stirs up that hoping in us. So let me take you first of all to chapter five in the book of Revelation. Let me just observe a couple of features here, right? So this is in the middle of all that kind of bizarre drama that John, the guy who has this vision, he sees these things. And he says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Now I know that's weird, living creatures and elders and all that, but note that we have a lamb that was slain. Okay, just kind of hold on to that for a minute. Let's go over to chapter eight. Uh, and later in this same long passage, the vision, uh, we see the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. Merry Christmas, right? <laughs> you think the snow is bad in the Midwest, I mean. <laughs> so hail and fire mixed with blood are falling down on the earth. Hold on to that. Next verse. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turned into blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. All right, hold on to that. Next verse. Uh, the third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky, and a third of the rivers, and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Now, before I show you the next slide, just think for a moment with me. There's a lot of like very dramatic imagery going on here, but what's really being described? You have, um, you have hail and fire falling down with blood. Like what's being described here? Well, the text actually tells you what it's describing. Next verse. These plagues. So the, the book of Revelation, this text, that these um, enslavers of other people withheld from the people they enslaved because it might, it might not only give them hope, but it might draw them into resistance. It tells a story that's familiar for first century people. A story about a lamb that's slain and plagues. I don't know how literate you are on the Bible trivia stuff, and this is not the kind of community that expects you to be literate on Bible trivia, but if you know a bit of Bible trivia and you hear about lambs being slaughtered and plagues being enacted, this is gonna ring a bell. This is gonna tell you all over again about the story of the Exodus. You know that story in the Old Testament where Moses is called by God to go to Pharaoh and affect the liberation of his people from their slavery, right? So I just wanna observe this with you. So Revelation is a book that apparently is so effective in helping people do their hoping. And hope is so dangerous for the things that are broken in the world. Hope is dangerous to injustice in the world, right? And then we look at the book and we ask, well, how does it serve the kind of hoping that is a threat to all that injustice, it goes way back to an ancient story about a particular time and a particular place where some kind of liberation happened, right? It goes way back, remember the first century audience is mostly Jewish, and these people have told this story to one another for years, that, that generations earlier, there was a moment in time when God did something dramatic in the world to affect our liberation, and then the text takes that, that particular experience in history, in time, that, that particular moment in the story that they have told from their past, it lifts it up and it makes it cosmic and universal. 
It says that that little, that little moment in the story where liberation happened, that's going to become a story about everything everywhere. That moment when in spite of all that's broken and dark, God seemed to have like broken in, justice broke in, healing broke in, liberation broken for a moment. It takes that moment and it says, that's going to become cosmic and universal one day. That you can actually trust that the thing that broken for a moment is telling you a bigger truth about where this is going and what it's going to look like when we get there. That's what I think the Bible understands when it talks about hope. That, that you might actually be able to mine your history and look back on your life and find moments, chapters, particularities where something broke in. And in spite of everything that was broken and not working, something like healing showed up in your life. And that when you stumble into those moments, those chapters, those particularities in your story, you are in fact being exposed to something that will ultimately be cosmic and universal. That you can trust that something true was revealing itself in those, in those moments in your history, in your story. Uh, being a pastor, a lot of what I get to do is just like sit with people and hear their story. And what I have found is if we can sit long enough and ask enough questions, it seems everybody, no matter how painful your story has been, no matter how many dark chapters it has had, it seems everybody has had at least a couple of moments where something that you might call grace like, broke in. Right? It might have been small, it might have only lasted for a moment, but I've yet to find someone who, if we do an inventory, a searching inventory on your life where we, we can't find something like that. And I, I think if we're gonna take any wisdom from that text that we call Revelation and from the sadistic intelligence of those slaveholders, we might trust that those little moments when grace broke and were telling us a bigger truth about where the story is headed. And if it's true that the story is headed somewhere where those little moments of grace and liberation become cosmic and universal, then we might start investing in a cosmic and universal peace right now. Now the other thing about um, like this Advent season and about um, like what this community is here for as a Jesus community is that like not only do you, like you have your story and I have my story, but we also have the Jesus story. I mean, that's at the center of this community and the center of our life together is the Jesus story. And we've spent the last several months focusing on uh, specifically what Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5 uh, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And what I want to say there, too, is maybe you have a hard time thinking about like a chapter in your life where you felt like that grace broke in or something liberating broke in. But on those days when you have a harder time seeing it in your own story, the other move that we get to make is to look for it in the Jesus story. And that's actually a, a, a faithful move that we can make when we have a hard time seeing it in our own lives, right? And so for the last few months, we've been hearing these things that Jesus says in Matthew 5, and I want to remind you just a little bit of what we've heard, but then beyond what he has said, there's also what he did and what he experienced and what we saw in the whole arc of this story, right? So he said things like, God wants to give God's life to you, and God is so committed to giving God's life to you and living God's life through you that there's no deficit in your life that can render you ineligible for it. There's nothing about you. There's nothing about what you've done or what's happened to you. There's nothing about your circumstances or your failures or your struggles or your hurts. There's nothing about any of those things that rules you out and says that God doesn't want to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. This is how we've heard those blessings in Matthew 5 when he says, even if you have a poverty within your spirit or even if you are weeping and mourning, have suffered great loss in spite of these things, God wants to give God's life to you. But then beyond like, the good things that Jesus says, what's also interesting is to look at what he does. 
Because I, like, I don't know about other preachers, although I, I do, actually. I'm a preacher, and I will just tell you, there's a gap between my words and my life. I want that gap to be as small as possible. I want to own the fact that that gap is real, but there's a gap between my words and my life. And actually, I do know other preachers, and there's a gap between their words and their life, too. <laughs> but I have been struck, in, just in the last few months, that I can't find a gap between Jesus' words and his life. I actually can't find that anywhere. So the same Jesus who says, hey, that poverty within you, that empty place inside, that's actually the very conduit through which the kingdom of God will come. Well, the, the reflection uh, in the book of uh, Philippians that comes from this hymn that the early church sang is that Christ emptied himself of all glory, that his very entry point into the life that we read about in the Gospels was that Christ emptied himself of all glory so that when he says to you that poverty within you is not a problem, he knows what he's talking about. I'm struck by how often Jesus weeps in the Gospels. That though I often like, would rather judge the world or like, remove myself from the world, Jesus lives so close to the pain of the world that he freely weeps from time to time, whether it's weeping for his friend Lazarus or weeping over the city of Jerusalem when he says, you don't know the things that make for peace. And I love you enough to wish that you knew the things that made for peace. And we could go on and on. The Jesus who aches for justice in the world, the Jesus who forgives and shows mercy, he's literally hanging on a cross, like literally having his life taken through an excruciating means. And in that moment, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In, in that moment, there's this like airtight integrity between the things he had said and then the life that he lives. He talks about um, being persecuted because your life is so deeply rooted in the life of God that everything that is not of God will have to come after you. Well, I don't know a more um, potent experience of persecution than the death that Jesus suffered, right? But of course, there's that other thing that Jesus knows, which is that evil is a limited resource and that it will bring everything it has against you when God is living God's life through you, but what you will find out is that when evil has brought everything it has, there is still more story to tell because love doesn't run out. And so uh, for 2,000 years, Christians have um, told this bizarre and beautiful story of resurrection, that in spite of there being no real precedent for this idea in time and history, that um, right out of the gate, a whole bunch of people lived the kinds of lives that are only explainable, that only make sense if they had actually encountered a resurrected Christ. And so like, part of what I'm saying is, even if you're having a hard time flipping through the pages of your own story, looking for hope to break in, looking for some kind of good news to break in, the other move that we get to make is to look at the Jesus story and to live in an encounter with that story and let it be one of those moments in time, one of those particularities in history where that life broke in, where that goodness broke in, where that grace broke in. And then with that, we get to make the same move that the book of Revelation makes. It, it, it's, it's like whispering to you. It's saying, hey, you know you can trust that, right? That moment in time in history where it seemed like not all is lost. That moment in time in history where it seemed like the good outweighs the bad, where it seems like love can actually defeat evil, that moment in time in history, like you can actually trust that. And it might seem like it's the exception, not the rule, but in the end, we will find out it's the other way around. So why don't you go ahead and divest yourself of, of the ways that you have given yourself to the brokenness of how things are. And like, why don't you start investing yourself even now in the way that things will be? 
and again, at least the conviction driving this community. And it, by the way, if, if you're not with me on this, it's okay, like, we get it, we love that you're here. Uh, any given day, survey this community and you'll find a whole spectrum of doubt and belief, and we love that about this community. But the conviction driving this community is, is that like, it's actually reliable and trustworthy, that the things that we saw in the life of Jesus are gonna keep going, and that we get to be a part of them. Uh, in fact, if I could give you like, a working definition of hope that we're gonna work with for the next few weeks, I think I would say it like this. Hope is knowing that God wants to give God's life to you and to live God's life in you. And it's trusting in a future where God's life is manifest everywhere. Everywhere. Where that particular little, little bit of hope that broke in becomes the, the story that is told everywhere. And we, we wanna let this picture of hope uh, guide us through this Advent season as we make our way um, to Christmas. We'll remember uh, those hundreds of years of darkness and silence between the last words of the prophets and the word of God that we call Christ. We'll remember that, that long, dark waiting. And then we will train ourselves to be the kinds of people who can feast on little glimmers of hope while we wait for hope to be like radiant and filling everything everywhere, right? Uh, let me tell you a little bit about like what the next few weeks will look like. I'd love to kind of give you a roadmap. Um, for like our practice together and, and the conversations that we're gonna have. So I'm gonna ask some uh, team members uh, to give you guys this. This is just a nice way to kind of keep track of everything going on in the next few weeks. And as they share those, let me tell you about a couple of uh, places where we're going to look for hope. And this might be surprising to you, but hang with me. I think this is gonna be really good for our community. So next week, as we explore this theme of hope in the Advent season, let me put it on the screen. Uh, next week, we're gonna uh, talk to a member of our community. I'm gonna have a conversation with Jim Stump. Uh, Jim's a member of South Bend City Church. Uh, Jim is a former professor of theology and philosophy at Bethel. And uh, Jim currently works for a group called BioLogos. And Jim and I are going to sit up here on the stage, and we're going to talk about hope in the context of creation care and climate change. Now, here's what I know about our church. And by the way, here's what I love about our church. When I just told you that we're going to take a Sunday during Advent to talk about climate change, roughly half of you were like, about freaking time, Jay. <laughs> and half of you were like, that seems like a left turn. Emphasis on left, I get it, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Here, here's the deal. So first of all, it's, it's actually like quite like biblical, like quite there in the text, that, like, that a part of the story is our relationship with the planet and the ways that we've gotten that wrong and the ways that we've gotten that right. When we read in Genesis 1 that we are like given dominion over the world, that, that's a way of saying we are called to steward the actual creation that we see around us, right? And in the end, there's all these like, really challenging questions to ask about like, like, what is the actual sort of like Christian vision of the future of this planet? Does it have a part in the sort of eternal story that's being told or not? We want to explore these themes uh, with Jim. Uh, and Jim's like a really good guy for us to do that. Um, Jim at BioLogos, uh, where he works as like a vice president, BioLogos works on science and faith. And one of the areas they explore is like, like Christian thinking about things like creation care and climate change. So we've got like an in-house expert who's gonna join us for this conversation. I also think that like, while not everyone here um, probably pays a lot of attention to the climate change stuff, I get that. Those who do, you know that the situation looks really dire. And so uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about that. Um, I think it would actually be kinda like cheap and um, superficial to talk about actual like hope in the world and, and not dig into a question like this where uh, a lot of us are looking at the projections and it, it just seems pretty rough. People even call it like a doomsday scenario, like for the next 
sort of future of our planet. We want to explore that uh, with Jim. And again, we've got like an in-house expert, so why not like take advantage of that, right? Yeah. Uh, those of you who are like, uh, did, did I get you any closer to thinking it's not a left turn for Advent? <laughs> no, okay, that's fine. You can talk to me afterwards. It's great. <laughs> uh, the following week, uh, we're going to talk with a number member of our community, Daniel Benura. I'm going to have an, a conversation with Daniel. Daniel is uh, here at Notre Dame doing his PhD in theology. I tell you that because um, I actually want to underscore the fact these are theological conversations. This isn't us just kind of like grafting in some hot, trendy issues. Um, these are theological questions that we want to ask with people who've thought deeply and theologically about them. So Daniel's uh, a theologian in his own right. But the other interesting thing about Daniel's perspective is Daniel's a Palestinian. He's actually born and raised in the West Bank. Uh, actually, he's like from like the place where Jesus is actually born. And we're definitely not going to tokenize that next week. I made a joke with him about that. It's fine. Daniel and I were good. Um, we're going to talk about justice uh, in the Bible and like, like, wh- like where does the story go when you look at injustice all around us? Uh, what does it mean to have a distinctively sort of Jesus-shaped view of these questions and not just like where they stand today but where they're headed in the future? And what does it mean for us to actually like be a part of that trajectory? Uh, if you listen to the podcast uh, Months ago, Daniel and I released an interview specifically about some of the stuff that was bubbling up between Israelis and Palestinians in terms of conflict. So you might have heard Daniel's voice before, and if you heard that conversation, I think you know that Daniel's a remarkably thoughtful, uh, wonderful person for us to learn from. So that'll be on December 12th. And because at that point we do acknowledge that we might have been a little heavy-handed for a couple of weeks, on the 19th we're bringing out the kids, and we're going to have them sing for us. And if the the 5th and the 12th get dark enough, we might add puppies to the (laughs) occasion. But the 19th will be a beautiful day. This is where you call the grandparents, like get the kids in their Sunday best. The kids will be on the stage leading us in worship. And we're also gonna um, celebrate the Eucharist or communion that day. And that's intentionally happening on a day when the kids are in the gathering because we'd love to invite you to make the Eucharist a family affair that day. Uh, For this church community, the the question we ask about communion is who wants to be at the table with Jesus? And that's it. So if you've got kids who want to be at the table with Jesus, doesn't matter how old they are, we'd love for you to be able to like go with them to the table where we can welcome one another and celebrate our last Eucharist of the year uh, before we get to Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, on the 24th, we've got gatherings at 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. These are candlelight gatherings where where we will uh, celebrate the gift that God has given to us in the arrival of Christ. Um, The 4 p.m. has childcare through age five. The 11 p.m. does not. Uh, That's the only difference between the two gatherings. And just so you're wondering about the spread there, like why 4 p.m. and 11 p.m., this is our best attempt at like recognizing that you have an actual life on Christmas Eve. So from what we can tell, um, a lot of people maybe want to be a part of the church gathering, but then get home and like be with the kids or do the family dinners and that kind of a thing. So that's why the 4 p.m. is as early as it is, is we hope that that serves you well and makes it um, easy for you to get onto the other things that you want to do that night. And then of course the 11 p.m., a lot of us have uh, felt that it's like really special and quite sacred to be together. Um, because if we do that gathering right, we stretch it just a bit, not because the preacher's long-winded, but because very strategically, we think it would be really fun to light candles as the clock crosses over to the first few minutes of Christmas morning and be together. So that's happening uh, December 24th. And then you'll see on the printout that we're not doing any Sunday gatherings on the 26th or January 2nd. Um, if you're new here, you may not know this about us, but like, we actually think that as a community, we should live by some of the same rhythms that we would recommend individuals live by. We preach feels not factories around here. It's one of our mantras. Feels not factories, among other things, says, you are not a machine. You can't have output 24-7, 365. That's not what we were meant to be. 
And we actually believe that for our whole community too. And so we're gonna let things lay fallow there for a couple of weeks uh, in the darkness of those winter days, and then we'll come back together on January 9th to get back into things. Uh, so that's the calendar side of things. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then we've got um, the Christmas offering. So Christmas offering has been a tradition of ours from the beginning. Uh, we think it's a really fitting way to celebrate the generosity of God who gives God's self to us in Christ. Uh, we wanna be a giving community. And so like other years, we'll do a Christmas offering. Like other years, we, we're gonna direct those resources in a few different areas that are lined up with our identity as a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. So a couple of the things that we'll do with Christmas offering, we'll resource the South Bend City Church community, like this church family. A couple of the things that we'll do, we'll resource some needs in the city. And a couple of things that we'll do, or one major thing that we'll do, will help us show up in the world at large. Uh, I'm not gonna get into these today, but over the next three Sundays, we're gonna take a little bit of time to focus on each one of those areas so that you can have a better sense of where your dollars are going and what we wanna do with them. Uh, the goal is $75,000, which just, even the fact that we could have a goal like that is uh, staggering and a privilege. And that's sort of built on previous year's history. Um, if we hit that goal, we'll fully fund everything. If we don't hit the goal, we'll still do everything. We'll just kind of ratchet things down proportionally. But regardless of where the giving ends up, we're going to do everything on the list here. And you'll hear more about that in the next few weeks. If you want to give, go online, stopandcitychurch.com slash give. And just make sure that you choose the Christmas offering fund when you make that special gift if you want it to go toward these things. Sound good? Yeah, some of you are excited about this giving thing. <laughs> awesome. That's where we're going the next few weeks. Let me take it back to that Revelation text for a moment, and we're going to sing just a little bit more before we go. And we're, gonna, we're finally going to light the first Advent candle. Um, so that, that Revelation text, if you have read the book of Revelation, you know that it's, it's bombastic, it's dramatic, it's apocalyptic, it's dragons and fire and mountains falling into the sea. And you read it and you're like, dude, I either had a vision or a bad trip, one of the two. But the one thing, the one thing this book is not is like quiet and humble. You know what I mean? Uh, the, uh, through all of these very dramatic images, um, it seems the text is speaking to us about an imagination for justice and for healing and for ultimately things being put back together in the future. And then after all of that bombastic, dramatic, apocalyptic stuff, at the end of all of that, I've always been struck by um, how quietly it ends, how simply it ends. You, you almost like can feel the dynamic in the text, like the text stretches and almost explodes with energy, and then at the end, it, it comes back to this very quiet, peaceful, simple thing. And I, I wanna show you how it ends. John, the person who's having this vision, here's Jesus who testifies to these things and says, yes, I'm coming soon. And then John just says this, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Isn't that? We long for the, the um, moments of hope that we have had to become universal. We long for those little pockets of healing and justice to become cosmic. And John has a prayer for that longing. And his prayer for that longing is amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so um, I'm going to invite the team back up. And there's a, a way of singing that very prayer that we're going to turn toward now. And as we do, uh, I'm going to light our first Advent candle. And so uh, we'll be singing, Come, Lord Jesus, while we light that candle. And maybe for you, um, this candle lit will be a sacrament of sorts. And you'll use your imagination um, to join this act and to bring with you some hope that you have or some longing that you have. 
Uh, maybe you will picture a place in your world or in the life that feels very dark right now. And maybe just seeing a candle lit will be like a prayer. And as that little bit of light uh, enters our, our space today, and as we sing this prayer, come Lord Jesus, you will be thinking, um, as I know I am, I am uh, very desperate for those little pockets of hope to expand. And perhaps doubt and faith will co-mingle, will coexist in you, um, as they often do in me. But somewhere in there, there will be some hope that the particularities that we have seen in the past will expand in the future. Uh, and the light of Christ will grow and the kingdom of God will come. And so we'll light this candle and we'll sing a prayer. Uh, and if you're able, will you stand to your feet? Uh, so may we be the ones who hope. May our hope not be uh, an exercise in naivety, burying our head in the sand. May we be the ones who bravely face things as they are, knowing that the way they are is not the way they will always be. May we find hope in the particularities of our stories and the chapters in our histories where some grace has come in. May we find hope in believing that the Jesus story is not done. And may we yearn together for that cosmic future when everything is healed and every tear is wiped from every eye and shalom and peace fill everything everywhere. And until that comes, may we be the kind of people who are already living for that future. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.